0: Hey, turn with me to uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. I thought this morning just, you know, being away and the way our event, way our day was planned uh, today that maybe we wouldn't dive right back into the series that we've been working through in 1 Corinthians, but rather we'd go to 2 Corinthians and just kind of turn to one of those fun, obscure stories of the Old Testament um, and just uh, work our way through it. And so we're going to be... Uh, Looking at the siege of Samaria in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 24 into chapter 7, let me give you a little bit of background into this so you just get your heads and, and hearts around the story a little bit. After the reign of Solomon, the nation of Israel kind of underwent their own church split. You know the story. Someone north, someone south. Two tribes to the south became the nation of Judah, uh, the southern uh, kingdom, and their capital city was the city of Jerusalem, where the line of David continued to reign, or Solomon's line. And then um, uh, to the north was the kingdom of Israel, where essentially 10 tribes wound up. And their capital became the city of Samaria. Now, in, towards the end of 1 Kings and into 2 Kings, uh, the writers tell us about the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha um, served as God's prophets, as God's spokesmen in the northern nation of Israel. We're going to see here that Elisha even had his home in the city of Samaria. And uh, they were God's mouthpiece to uh, a nation that was often given over to idolatry that had wicked kings. You know, typically the pattern was that Judah would have a little bit more of a righteous king and, and they would seek to serve the Lord, and, and Israel would have the unrighteous king, evil, who would be leading the people into idolatry. And so the ministry of Elijah and Elisha was both based in the northern kingdom. Now, during the ministry of Elisha, often uh, Syria, the nation of Syria, was coming constantly and attacking. Uh, the nation of Israel, and many times God used Elisha to intervene in the midst of those things. You might recall how Elisha would proclaim the plans of the kings of Syria to the Is- Israelite kings, and they would adjust their warfare and find victory. Um, you you might also recall Second Kings chapter five, the Syrian commander by the name of Naaman, who came to Israel to find the prophet of the Lord to be healed of his leprosy, and, and the Lord healed him through the ministry of Elisha. And so in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, where the story starts for us is this, is that Ben-Hadad, the, the king of Syria, was kind of like we would, might say, king so-and-so. Ben-Hadad was a common name for kings of Syria. Uh, had mustered his army, and he had come and besieged the city of Samaria. He had surrounded it. He'd cut off the city. We know that's, that's how a siege worked. No one gets in, no one gets out. No fresh water supply, no fresh food supply, no escaping from the city. If you tried to leave the city, unless maybe it was absolute surrender, you might, you might live, but likely you'd die. And essentially, this foreign army was just seeking to starve the city out until they uh, surrendered or died within the walls in The scripture tells us in chapter 6 here that there was famine in the city and that it was severe. There was shortage. And you can only imagine the seriousness of the situation. I mean, in in fact, it it got so desperate that the writer of 2 Kings tells us exactly how bad it was. He says this, that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels. That's 640 bucks. I kind of just did the math. So you can imagine, you know, what a lovely meal that would make. It's kind of Godfather-esque, I guess. That on the dinner table, a donkey's head, and I don't know how much meat you'd get out of that, but 640 bucks. The situation was desperate. Not only that, the writer says that a cup of bird poop, pigeon's dung, dove's dung, one cup of it sold for $40. That people were at the point where they were eating animal waste. It was desperate. In fact, it got so bad that one day while the king was walking along the wall of, a, of the city, uh, one of the women in the city cried out to him and said, oh, oh Lord, my, oh Lord, the king, help me. And the king just responded to her and he said, if God doesn't help you, how can I help you? Where am I going to get food? From the, from the, you know, the threshing floor? from the wine press, and then he asked her, what is the trouble? And she recounted to him a disturbing story. She said this, my neighbor came to me and said, come give us your son and today we'll eat your son and then tomorrow I'll give my son and we'll eat him. And so she gave her son and they ate him, but the next day when it was time to do so to the other woman's son, she took her son and she hid him away. It's kind of a cruel twist on Solomon's account of the two mothers. They had, both of these women had agreed to eat their children, and now one had broken the pact. And so the situation was just so desperate in the city of Samaria that the people were resorting to cannibalism. I mean, it's hard to even imagine. It couldn't be more worse. And so when the king heard the words of the woman... Uh, we read in, uh, in chapter 6 here that he tore his clothes, an act of sorrow, an act of distress, an act of despair, heartache, woe. <laughs> things could not get worse. You know, I just wonder how things are going to be some, for some folks. We didn't pray for them this morning, but we need to pray for them yet today. Uh, devastating news in our community this week. and. 71 now is the number. 171 people lost their jobs at House Sound, Pulp, and Paper. Devastating. M- many of those homes, a husband and a wife both work there, and now they have no income. And people find themselves in desperate situations. Maybe this morning you're in some sort of desperate situation. One of sorrow, distress, distress one of heartache. woe, and it seems like things could not be worse than they feel right now in this moment. Well, when the king tore his clothes, his garments, the people saw that underneath his garments he was wearing sackcloth, uh, a rough woven fabric that they wore in that culture during times of repentance and times of expressing humility before the Lord, and it was This itchy cloth was almost kind of meant to bring discomfort and irritation as one expressed their their humility and their contrition and their heart before God to be repentive. And I'm not sure why the king really here was keeping up appearances in the sense that it was hidden under his robes. Uh, Maybe he was just keeping his humility, you know, to himself. But the explanation seems to be, as you look at the story, that Elisha had counseled them not to surrender to the, to the Syrian army with the promise that as they expressed their humility before the Lord, a heart of repentance and contrition, that God would act on behalf of the city. And so the king had assumed the signs of contrition and humility, but what had happened was that relief had not come. And now he hears this, this story that just takes the desperation of the situation beyond anything he may have imagined. And he quickly decides that Elisha had been proven false and faithless and that he must be the cause of all the distress. And so, you know, he vowed and said this, may God do so to me and more if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders by the end of the day. Plan to kill the man of God. Now, if this king was truly humble, humble in regards to his own nation's sin, he, would, he wouldn't have vowed vengeance on the prophet's life. He, he would have remained in a position of humility before the Lord. But it's gotten so bad, he says, it's time to kill the man of God. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 33, he comes to Elisha, he comes to the home of Elisha, and he says these words, this trouble is from the Lord, and why should I wait from him? Wait for him any longer? Quite the statement. You know, we know that the scripture counsels us to wait for the Lord. The psalmist said, Be still and wait for God. Be patient before him. Isaiah said, They that wait on God will renew their strength. Al read to us from... Lamentations chapter 3, which I thought was awesome because I was going to do the same thing this morning. And there Jeremiah said this, The Lord is good for those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men let us examine our ways and return to the lord jeremiah says i called on the name i called on your name o lord from the depths of the pit and you heard my plea do not close your ear to my cry for help you came near when i called on you and you said do not fear the Lord is good to those who wait for them, wait for Him, even in the midst of their desperation. Even Paul tells us in Romans chapter eight verse 28, that famous verse that we know so well, that's easy to let just roll off your tongue but is true when we lay hold of it by faith, that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Why should that king continue to wait for the Lord? Because the Lord meets those that wait for him. Why should we continue to wait for the Lord? Because God will meet us when we wait for him. And so Elisha, in the midst of this challenge from the king, gives a prophecy of deliverance. He says to the king, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord about this time tomorrow. Find flour And barley will sell for a fraction of the cost at the gate of Samaria. 24 hours from now, he says, God will bring deliverance. He says, hear the word of God. Hear the word of the Lord. See, that's why we wait for the Lord right there. So that he'll speak and he'll give us what we need to sustain us. As Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Elisha promises food. He promises abundant provision that will satisfy the desperate condition of the city. And as I read that, I, I think, you know, faith expects God to do what is beyond human expectation. And those who cannot find it in their hearts to take God at His word you know, just forfeit all the benefits of his promises. Now, as as Elisha spoke this word of prophecy that there would be provision, immediately there was a, the the word of prophecy was met by a voice of unbelief. The captain on whose arm the the king uh, leaned at the end of chapter 6, said, even if, The windows of heaven were open. Could this be? Well, the floodgates of heaven opened this morning. (laughs) That's actually the description that he's using. He says, even if heaven opened like in the days of Noah and the rain came down, could there be such a provision? You know, unbelief is a thief. And, And And God's word is often met by some sort of challenge when it is spoken, the voice of unbelief. And the question for us always is this, will I trust God in my situation? Will I take him at his word? Will I cling to his promise? And to the humble heart that is open to God, the word of God gives birth to faith in in our lives. The word of God generates faith. But to the proud self-centered heart, the word of God just makes that heart almost seem to become, you know, harder. It's like, it's like the sun in the sky, like shining down the same sun that melts ice hardens clay. And when we're humble before the Lord, it, His word softens our heart and, and fills us with faith. And when we're hardened against God, we're like that piece of clay dried out by His word. And Elisha said to the king's officer, you will see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so a word of prophecy, of deliverance, provision. Jumped up to chapter 7 there, and we read in verse 3 is, Elisha's been prophesying. We're introduced to some new characters in the story, and it says this, Now there were four men who were lepers sitting at the entrance of the gate. Old Testament law uh, was quite detailed in its instruction regarding how to recognize, give recognition and quarantine people that were suffering from leprous diseases. Leprosy is not something that we see in our culture or really necessarily know a lot about but was common in those days it was a slowly progressing and curable skin disease and what would happen is, is often the disease would break out on your face around your eyes or on your forehead and it would just begin uh, to spread and leprosy damages nerve endings so that you can't you can't feel you can't feel cuts you can't Uh, Your body can't deal with infections and your body just simply doesn't have the ability to heal itself any longer. And often the result is, is because you can't feel and you can't, the nerves aren't working that you lose feeling in extremities of your body, like like your fingertips and you don't know that you've got infection and cuts and different things. And often... Lepers lose their noses and fingers start to come off and different things like that. And it was a, a, a terrible, terrible disease. And the scripture directed the Jewish people to quarantine people that had this disease because it was highly contagious. And the life of a leper was one of loneliness. When they uh, traveled and were anywhere near anyone, they had to shout unclean, unclean and warn people that were coming towards them. To stay away because they were infectious. And due to the danger of the spreading disease, you know, human touch was unknown for a leper. It was just no longer could they experience the, the affection and the intimacy of human touch or hugging a child or whatever it was. And it's interesting that the scripture actually gives guidelines for how to readmit a leper back into Society. Let's say somehow a leper found healing. Then the scripture gave instructions how to bring them back into society. But the reality was this, is that the scripture also implied that leprosy implies that leprosy can never be healed except by the miraculous. The Old Testament has no, no references to treatment or to remedy. And leprosy really is a great picture for us of sin. It's a great picture of the, the, of an outward, well, if you think about it this way, an outward and visible sign of the inner corruption that sin brings. Small in its beginning, gradually spreading, internally disfiguring and destroying your relationship with God, a disease that little by little destroys the whole body, corrupting, degrading, defiling the inner nature of man so that he's rendered unable to even enter the presence of God. And just like a leper was unclean to be in the presence of others, so sin, like an internal leprosy, stops us from entering into the presence of God. And leprosy or sin is like leprosy in the sense that it is... It is incurable apart from the miraculous working of God. You know, when Naaman came to Israel and to hunt down Elisha and to be healed of his leprosy because the servant girl had told him, there's a prophet who can heal you in the land of Israel. He, Naaman first went to the king of Israel and he said, I, I came here to be healed. And if you know the story, King Jeroram exclaimed, oh, my God, can I kill and make alive? That this man comes to me to heal him of leprosy? Because Joram just knew that leprosy could only be cured by a miracle. And so any contact with lepers defiled the person who touched them. Sometimes, though, we read in Scripture that lepers were miraculously healed. There's the story of Miriam, Moses' sister, who when she rebelled against Moses, God struck her with leprosy. And when, she, when Moses prayed for her, she was healed. Of course, the story of uh, Naaman. King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles um, assumed the priesthood and he went into the presence of God in the temple and into the holy place. He opposed the, the priests and the scripture says that leprosy began to break out on his forehead and they rushed him out of the presence of God before he died and he was a leper for the rest of his life. Of course you flip to the New Testament Jesus cured lepers it was one of the one of the specific healing ministries of Jesus that we read about. One occasion he healed 10. And not only can Jesus cure and heal the physical leper, but by his divine power, Jesus can graciously cure the leprosy of the soul, the destruction that sin brings, that the taint of sin can be forgiven when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's these four lepers sitting at the gate of their city, and they began to discuss their situation. They said this, we can stay here and nothing changes, and what's going to happen? We're going to die. He said, well, we could go into the city, even though we're unclean, we could go into the city, but if we go in there, we're going to starve, and we're going to die. Or there's a third option. If, however, we were to go to the camp of the Syrians, maybe they would have pity on us. Maybe they would spare us, and, and we live. And if they don't spare us, we die. <laughs> Win, 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 almost. There was an option. See, leprosy had so deeply impacted their lives that they had reached the point where basically they had nothing to lose and everything to gain by taking a risk. And it's the same for us. Sin does the same thing. And we come to this place where we we just have to come to this conclusion where we say, what if I got to lose? I got to try Jesus. I got to surrender my life to Jesus because leprosy of soul leads to death. And when we come to the camp of the Lord, we come to his kingdom, the Lord promises that he will graciously forgive those who come to him. The Lord promises that those who acknowledge his provision through his son Jesus Christ to them is given the free gift of eternal life. And so these four lepers arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, those whom they had once considered their enemies, would actually be the source of God's provision for them. And so too, you know, outside of the cross, we're enemies of God. Enemies of His Son, not knowing that God has made a provision for us in His Son. Check it out in chapter 7, verse 5 to 8. We'll read a few verses here. It says this, verse 5. So they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold... There was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of the chariots and of the horses and the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the, the kings of Egypt to come against us, so they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. Verse 8, And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing, and they went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. I mean, you got to love that story. I mean, just think about it. They roll the dice. What have we got to lose? They arrive at the enemy camp, Realizing this might be the end for them. This might be death. Or we may find mercy. And they did not die. In fact, I would say they found far more than mercy. They found grace when they arrived at that tent, that camp. They found the grace of God. They found provision from heaven. They found that the floodgates of heaven did open for them. Divine intervention. Heavenly interruption in the plans of men for those who would take a risk. Verse 6 again says, you know, I, I love this. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us kings of Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled in the twilight. You know, the Syrian army, you think about it, they, they heard chariots, they, they heard horses, the sound of a mighty army, and they abandoned everything. They just left camp like a fully stocked ghost town, you know? Tents, horses, donkeys, food, clothing, silver, gold. You know what the scripture says? The scripture says actually that a wicked man flees, though no one pursues. There was no army. And God can, if he wills, you know, just dispirit the boldest and most brave enemy of, who stands against the cause of Christ. The Lord can make a stout, brave heart tremble at the shaking of a leaf if he so desires. And what did that Syrian army hear? The sound of an army that did not exist except by the miracle-working power of God. In verse 8, it says... And when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and they ate and they drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and they went and hid them. And they came back and entered another tent and they carried off things from it and they went and hid them. You know, I just, if heaven's got a PVR version, I want to see this one. <laughs> I want to see the replay. These, these four guys going into the camp and just feasting. I'd love to see the scene. As they experience the abundant provision of God in their lives. They ate till their heart's content and their stomach's limit, like we plan to do this afternoon. You know, I'm sure they were clothed in the finest of dust. Like, I mean, they, they were lepers. They probably were wearing just scraps of clothing, and now they're dressing in the finest robes of the Syrian army. From societal outcast to dressing like rich, prominent, Valuable men in the world. Hanging around their necks and their wrists and whatever fingers they had left, I could see the silver and the gold of the Syrian armies and all their wealth. And they began to take items and to hide them, stashing it away like buried treasure and then going back for more and taking more provisions and hiding those provisions and taking more and hiding those. And they enjoyed and delighted and reveled in the provision of God. They took opportunity to hide treasure for themselves. And it's a natural reaction. It's, it's good. And coming into the kingdom of God is just like that. We have a similar reaction. We discover the richness and the provision that God has for us spiritually. And like men who have found treasure, we take the promises and the riches of God's kingdom and we hide them in our heart. We dress and we clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ and we feast on his word. It becomes our food and our bread. And like these lepers, we know the miraculous provision of the kingdom of God. And as they enjoyed the spoils of grace with all of their needs met, a realization set into their hearts. And it's the same one I hope will set into our hearts this morning. It's in verse 9. They said this. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This is the day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. The realization that settled into their hearts was this, that while they were enjoying all of the abundant provision of God, dressing in the wealth of what he had provided, tucking away the silver and the gold, feasting on the food, there were others just a short distance away who were starving to death. Basically, they were dead already. Those left behind in that city, starving to death, were spending whatever they had left on that which would not satisfy pigeon poop and donkey's heads and cannibalism, sacrificing their children with the hope that they could live on. Starving, Suffer- suffering from a leprosy of soul, dead in their sin, in need of someone to tell them about the abundant provision God had provided and so too for us there are people all around us who need to be told about the abundant provision God has provided in the person of Jesus Christ for the leprosy that's in their own hearts and these lepers said this is the day of good news this is the day of good news we're not doing right by keeping this to ourselves we must go back and tell The city, and so those lepers traveled back to the city, to that very city, you think about it, a place where they had been excluded and quarantined from. And they went there and they delivered the good news that God had provided God had made a way. He had provided a provision. They delivered the good news. And just like often is the case for you and I when we share the good news of Jesus, when these lepers went back and they shared the good news, those who heard the message in the city were skeptical. They thought it was a trick. They suspected that maybe the Syrian army was trying to pull a fast one on them and had gone into hiding, and when they'd come out of the city, they'd be destroyed. But in the desperation of their life and death situation, they made a decision and they said, We will go and see for ourselves. You know, it reminds me of the New Testament story in John chapter 1 when Jesus began to just select his disciples. The scripture tells us when he went to Galilee, he found Philip and he said, Philip, follow me. And Philip, a man from Bethsaida, Uh, left everything, and he began to follow Jesus. And as he followed Jesus, he went and he found Nathanael. And he said to Nathanael, we have found the one whom Moses and the law told us about, whom the prophets wrote about. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said that famous line, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip responded to him in a way that should be more famous. He said this, just come and see come and see come and see and the scouts of samaria went to see and as they investigated they discovered that things were greater than they ever could have realized or than the lepers had even reported to them for all not only was it the camp all the way along the road from samaria to the jordan river The army had strewn clothing and equipment as they fled in in haste at the sound of the horses and the chariots and the great army that was never there. And so the people came out of Samaria, those who were starving and suffering, and they plundered the camp of the Syrians. And as Elisha had prophesied and as the word, uh, according to the word of God, fine flour and, and barley sold for a fraction of its cost. You know, as I think about this story and we apply it to ourselves today, you know, it it doesn't take much imagination to see how it fits. Jesus has won victory over our enemy, Satan. He has defeated the power of sin. That is good news. Amen? And we as believers and followers of Jesus are enjoying all of the abundant provisions and blessings of the kingdom of God. And meanwhile, there's a world around us, suffering, dying. And the challenge of this text is this, how can we keep the good news to ourselves? In doing so, we're not doing right. How can we be silent in the day of good news? leave you with that challenge this morning. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come.